From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, we're still thinking about Obama, and so is Joy Reid. She's the host of AM Joy on MSNBC. We'll talk with her about Obama's rhetoric on race and what role it might have played in the triumph of white nationalism in the recent presidential campaign. Also, maybe you heard the Republicans promised to repeal and replace Obamacare, but they're having a hard time with the replace part of that. David Dayen will comment. But first, Donald Trump is vicious, but he's also vulnerable. That's what Gary Young says. Of course, he's a columnist for The Nation and a fellow at The Nation Institute and an award-winning writer for The Guardian. He's also written several books. The new one is Another Day in the Death of America. We talked about it here a couple of weeks ago. Gary, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jim. Well, I'd like to start by asking you to read the opening of your new column for The Nation, where you describe Donald Trump. Okay. I write, Donald Trump is a buffoon. He is racist. He is a misogynist. He is a thick-skinned thug and a charlatan. He is a vulgar bigot and a xenophobe. He is a liar and a plutocrat. All of those things are true. None of them are the point. Concentrating on them can build a white-hot furnace of self-righteous rage that will most likely lead to self-immolation. It will create great sketches and memes and nurture a sense of despair and grievance that can marinate in self-indulgence. There will be plenty of material for those on the liberal left who wish to be angry. But for those who wish to channel that anger into an effective resistance, they face a stiffer challenge. A stiffer challenge. You know, it seems like we've never had a president like Trump. Do you agree that Trump is unique? I think he's of a different order. I think that he didn't come from nowhere, though. I mean, you know, pretty much most of the devices and and his MO we have seen before. If we think of the kind of um, swift boating and George Bush or the the stuff around Bush's um, draft dodging, then we've seen the kind of pack mentality of the right, the way in which people think of Iraq, the way in which people ignore facts. What we haven't seen, I think, is something as brazen as this. And what's difficult to gauge at this stage, certainly his election campaign was like nothing we've seen before. What we've yet to see at this stage is the degree to which this is a difference of etiquette uh, as opposed to, for want of a better word, as opposed to substance, that he is blatantly racist, he's blatantly misogynistic, he's blatantly xenophobic, as opposed to being a far more, you know, in the spirit of Nixon, where he, when he told Holderman, the problem is really the blacks, and the issue is how you, how you act on that without actually saying it, whether the difference is that he's actually saying it, or whether he's going to do something different. I mean, what's clear is that he has emboldened a group of people who would not have been emboldened by a kind of Mitt Romney 
campaign or a John McCain campaign. It's almost like if we think back to that moment in the McCain campaign where the woman says, I don't like Obama, he's an Arab. And McCain takes the mic from her and says, no, you know, he's an American with whom I have, you know, serious disagreements or whatever he says. It's like that mic has been given back yeah. to the mob. Yeah. So Trump is about to take power, and he'll have immense power, but, but you say there's weakness there, too. Let's talk about the weakness that you see. Well, I think, I think there, there is. I mean, I, I think this is a minority view, really, but I think that the, the far right is emboldened, but I don't know that the right in general is particularly ascendant, that the Republican Party did not want him. By the time they figured out that he could win, it was too late. He has found himself in a, in a series of scraps and scrapes already with the Republican establishment. And the fact that he won, while that is very serious and kind of quite depressing, very depressing, does not necessarily mean that he's still not a liability. I, I think that he is. You know, one thinks back to uh, Wilson winning in California. So we're talking here about Pete Wilson, the governor of California, who was running for re-election after endorsing Prop 187. That was in 1994. Prop 187 was a vicious anti-immigrant initiative that actually passed with the voters of California at that point, but then was eventually overturned by the courts. And what the long-term effect of that was in terms of the anti-immigrant policies that he pursued and the fact that while he won, what he did eventually was weaken the Republican Party in California to the extent that California is now right off in a way that, you know, the state that produced Nixon and Reagan is now right off for Republicans, when it, certainly when it comes to presidential elections. You think that the Trump, the, the Trump victory could be hollow in the way that Pete Wilson victory was in California oh. back in the 90s? Nobody knows, do they? Nobody knows. Right. He's erratic. Right. He's, but, but, yeah, I think that there is a serious chance of that. And so these, these points I'm making are more l- long-term. Immediately, yeah. it's incredibly frightening. But if one thinks of the people that the Republican Party wanted to be the presidential candidate, what we see is actually that they have no control over their party or their base. And if the Democrats had had a stronger candidate, had run a better campaign, had shown more humility than hubris in terms of thinking, well, maybe we can win Arizona, basically believing their own PR, then they could have won. And that the, the Trump got a smaller percentage of the eligible vote than uh, McCain, than Romney, than Kerry, than... Gore, all of whom lost. He got the same percentage of the white vote as uh, McCain, more or less. And so this isn't, one should not see this as a kind of stampede to the right, I don't think. And, and also, the narrative, and this has been true of Brexit, as true of Brexit as it is here, of this kind of class rebellion against the establishment just doesn't fit the facts. 
that the overwhelming majority of people who voted for Trump were wealthy, and that the white working class that backed him were a very junior part of that coalition. It doesn't mean it's not significant, and that it doesn't matter, but that even in those Rust Belt states, the problem for the Democrats wasn't actually the huge shift from Democrat to Republican. It was the number of people who stayed at home. You, you point out rightly that the Republicans didn't want Trump, that Trump's victory in that way illustrates the weakness of the Republican Party as a party. Don't you think they know that? And, and my worry is that because they sense their weakness, they, they fear Trump and, and they are more likely to do uh, what he wants, even when it contradicts their deepest commitments, like, like uh, deficit spending or, I don't know, hate, hating Putin. I think that's going to be the likely outcome in the, in the short term. Yeah, I think that um, they will cave to his baser desires, and pretty much most of his desires are pretty base. But that he lacks an infrastructure. He lacks a kind of um, any kind of broader movement, really, beyond himself. And the, the, the way he's gone around more recently saying, yeah, 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 we're not going to build a wall, and the Mexicans aren't going to pay for it, and I just said that so that I could get elected and so on. I, I think that the prospect of a real disappointment is, is evident here, and the risk, the real risk is that the, the liberals and the left don't learn the lessons from their defeat and instead chase him to the right as opposed to standing firm on their ground and, and you know, making the case and mobilizing the kind of people that are going to make it kind of, you know, very difficult for him to do the things that he wants to do. And I feel like, yeah, I think that this is going to be a very difficult time for them. And that's without what I hope will be kind of popular resistance to, you know, to the, the, the most egregious uh, elements of his policy and platform. So the Republican Party is weak, uh, how would you describe the Democratic Party? Well, almost certainly in denial, it looks to me. I mean, there's hope there, because if one thinks of the, um, uh, the Bernie Sanders insurgency and so on, with a more populist candidate, and one, crucially, that can appeal to black and Latino support, I think could really eat into Trump's, those elements of Trump's base and can, you know, bring people out onto the streets and kind of, you know, raise a level of kind of awareness about what he's doing. My fear, and this, you know, these are things that I've read when I was in Britain, is that the Democrats get stuck on Russia, hacking, and a, and a range of things, not that they don't matter, but they're, they, they're missing the point about why they lost if they think that were it not for Johnson, Stein, Russia, WikiLeaks, Assange, whoever, that they actually have to take responsibility for what happened there, which was 
they crowned a candidate. It was a, it was it was an attempt at a coronation that ended up not being as pretty as that because of Sanders. But nonetheless, that was the desire. That's what kept people, I think, like Warren and so on, out was this has been sewn up. It's her turn, and they ran a candidate that was appealing to the status quo, and the status quo wasn't working for large numbers of people. The gap between black and white is rising. The gap between rich and poor is rising. Hillary stood for Obama's third term, and as popular as Obama may be, people didn't want that. And unless they learn those lessons, then of course there's going to be a real problem, because the issue with this new normal is that it emerged from the old normal, and the old normal was not good. Lots of people were hurting, and too few people saw a way out of that through electoral politics. And so somebody, whoever emerges as a voice, and more importantly, whatever emerges as a platform, has to engage with what those problems were in terms of the old normal. Neoliberal globalization, the way that it has devastated communities, the massive increase in inequalities, and so on, much of which actually was unleashed during a democratic presidency. Gary Young, read him at thenation.com. Gary, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for having me, John. Republicans have been saying for months their first task is to repeal and replace Obamacare. The first week, the first day. But suddenly they're running into problems with the replace part. It turns out that even Republicans, even Trump himself, don't really want repeal without replace. But what are they going to replace Obamacare with? For comment, we turn to David Dayen. He's been writing a lot for The Nation lately. He also writes for The Intercept, The American Prospect, and Vice. And he wrote the award-winning book, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. David Dayen, welcome. Thanks, John. So what exactly are the Republicans planning to replace Obamacare with? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. Uh, nobody seems to know. There isn't uh, you, know, you would think after six years uh, there would be something on a shelf that they could pull down that would have a consensus among all uh, members of the caucus, but there really isn't. Uh, the closest that we have is, you know, Paul Ryan uh, has his uh, his framework that he put together called A Better Way, and that has some elements of what would be done to replace Obamacare. Uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary nominee, Tom Price, also has uh, done some work, initiated legislation uh, on multiple occasions that would sort of have a framework, but it hasn't been agreed to by anybody and certainly not by the Senate. And so they're moving headlong into this repeal because it's it was maybe the number one campaign promise, but... The replace is some some sort of, you know, it's just sort of out of their reach. And there's a lot of tension in the Republican caucus around going forward with eliminating this uh, legislation, which, you know, whatever you think of it, did increase coverage by 20 million Americans without a plan to do at least that uh, in the future. And so that is where 
the, the, the politics has become very kind of fascinating. So let's talk about the political forces at, at work here. The Republicans in the House especially have been voting to repeal Obamacare dozens of times, but there's a lot of a lot of, I guess we should call them players in uh, the healthcare world. There's insurance companies, there's hospitals, there's doctors. And then there's Donald Trump himself who said it has to be replaced with something. What was his adjective? Something terrific. Something terrific. It's something that has to cover everybody. So what, what, what are the political forces that are at work on this? I think the political forces were triggered in March of 2010 when Obamacare passed. Yeah. And that set an expectation for government to play some role in getting people affordable coverage. Now, you can argue about whether the Affordable Care Act actually achieved that goal, whether the coverage is affordable, whether it's usable because of the high deductibles in some of the plans. Uh, however, that expectation that was set made it so that Republicans couldn't go back to the status quo before Obamacare. They, they at least don't feel that they can because nobody is suggesting that. Practically nobody is, is suggesting, well, we'll just repeal Obamacare and go back to the good old days mm -hmm. <laughs> when we had 50 mm -hmm. million people uninsured. So because of that, uh, Republicans have to face this idea that they have to come up with something that at least does what Obamacare does as far as coverage goes. And they, of course, want to make it more affordable. Well, that costs money. <laughs> it's money they don't really want to spend, particularly not on the types of uh, the populations that were really helped by Obamacare. And so this is this is the brick wall that Republicans are headed into. Let's talk about the insurance companies, which, of course, are the huge beneficiaries of Obamacare. We, of course, wanted a single-payer system like Medicare for All, and Obama's political strategy was by enlisting the insurance companies, by having a bill where the federal government would subsidize private insurance companies, that is, the profits of private insurance companies, they would enlist the, the giant insurance companies in support of Obamacare. Is that still the case? I mean, yeah, he, he tried to buy them off. He, he tried to sort of, here's the deal. You're going to cover everybody. You're not going to deny anyone coverage for a pre-existing condition. And in exchange, uh, we're going to give you essentially a forced market. We're going to put an individual mandate together. Now, Republicans really don't like the mandate. However, what they uh, seem to be coalescing around, or at least what's in Tom Price's bill, is very similar to the mandate. It's called continuous coverage. It says that you cannot be denied for a pre-existing condition as long as you have coverage continuously. There's no gap of any sort. And that's that's effectively a mandate, because if you put a gap in your coverage, then all of a sudden you can be denied for that reason and, and, and you lose your bargaining power, you lose your leverage. So it's sort of a mandate without calling it a mandate. That That's what Republicans are really looking to do. And, you know, you combine that with the fact that they're not really constraining insurance companies with regard to cost in terms of premium coverage. You, they, they don't have to charge people the same rate, what's known as community rating. Uh, they, can, they can charge older people a lot more than they charge younger people. It's just a, an invitation to raise the price, to price people out of the market. And inevitably, the people who uh, are, are, you know, in our country, who are the lowest income earners, inevitably are the ones with the most pre-existing conditions. 
and and that's just a factor of their environment and 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 the fact that they can't afford really good medical coverage. So the the Republican plan is almost allowing this taking away of the mandate while uh, not not really saying it and and allowing insurers to game the system. So they probably they might like the Republican plan even more because what they can do is raise the price to their heart's content, take out the people who are who utilize the system the most uh, by sort of a, a, a kind of natural selection by by raising the price. And so they they don't have to spend as much uh, on each patient. But don't some parts of Ob- Obamacare seem permanent that even Republicans say they want, even Donald Trump says he wants? Yes. Uh, you know, the, the, the part of the plan that allows children to remain on their parents' plans up to age 26. Donald Trump has said, we got to keep that. The pre-existing condition issue. Donald Trump has said, we want to keep that. And also keep in mind that the way in which Republicans are repealing Obamacare is through a special process that circumvents the filibuster in the Senate. So it's only a majority vote. However, that is a process known as budget reconciliation, uh, which is is done to sort of, you know, uh, get get the budget to a certain level. And everything in that reconciliation bill has to be budget related. So pre-existing conditions can't really fit in a reconciliation bill. Uh, and there are several other insurance reforms that can't really fit in a reconciliation bill. So they're repealing it really only partially by design, because otherwise they'd have to get eight, eight Democrats in the Senate, and that's just not going to happen. And so they have to work around this this kind of uh, hurdle that 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 has been put in place. And once you can't change the pre-existing condition exclusion, uh, it becomes very difficult for uh, insurance companies to back a, a bill without any sort of mandate in it, because that's the that's the deal. There's this political paradox that the states that benefit the most from Obamacare, that have the highest enrollments, the highest proportion of of covered uh, people, are the Trump states, the red states, Mm -hmm. uh, West Virginia, number one. Uh, What's the matter with those people? Do they really want to lose their coverage? Well, there's there's this situation where they don't know what Obamacare is, but they know what Kentucky Connect is, which is the Kentucky version of the exchanges. And the other important thing here and, and where Republicans are going to be uh, you know, hard pressed to actually repeal this law is the states where Republicans represent states that that uh, expanded Medicaid, because we I mean, there's really two parts to the coverage of Obamacare. Yeah. You have the exchanges and that that that's the subsidies and the, and the, the mandate and things like that. And then there's the expansion of Medicaid. Which is and, huge. Which is huge. It's it's half the coverage gains in yeah. Obamacare have been through the expansion of Medicaid. And it's in a lot of states like West Virginia, like Kentucky, like Indiana. Um, Louisiana just expanded Medicaid. Uh, North Carolina, the, the new governor, has done an executive order to expand Medicaid. So you have Republican senators representing those states. And if they repeal Obamacare, they're instantly taking all of those people who got Medicaid coverage through the expansion through federal dollars off the rolls. And that is a hard pill to swallow. You're talking about a lot of people, you're talking about a lot of base constituents of Republicans, people in the the, the working class, the white working class, 
who rely on Medicaid. And, uh, you know, there's this cognitive dissonance that goes on. It's like, don't, you know, take your government hands off my Medicaid kind of thing. Despite the unpopularity of Obamacare, it seems like Obamacare really changed America. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think it created this expectation level that the government uh, is not going to be a, a laissez-faire player in the healthcare market. We're going to work to make sure that you have access to affordable coverage. And once you lay down that marker, I mean, in 1993, Bill Crystal sent this memo talking about uh, Clinton's uh, attempt to do universal health care. And he said, we have to stop this because once you get that expectation, uh, the public is, is going to demand it. And that's exactly what we're seeing play out. So, you know, maybe a stop clock being right twice a day. Bill Crystal was right. He, 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 this was an, an, a, a, a way in which the, the system changed. And it changed for Democrats and Republicans, by the way, because Democrats, should they get back into power, are going to have to come up, you know, deal with this expectation level. And if the coverage is too expensive, like like some say with Obamacare, if the deductibles are too expensive, the out-of-pocket costs, they're going to have to deal with that and move towards a system that maybe expands coverage more uh, to more people and has even more federal involvement. So I think it 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 was a, a, a way in which the the sort of social safety net was expanded and the expectation was granted. And now politicians have to live up to that. Back when this was all getting started, we wanted single payer plan like Medicare for all. That's not going to happen right now. But do you think it's in the future anytime? Now that Obamacare has really set this expectation and 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 now that the the public really has a, a, a need and, and a belief that they, you know, have this, that they get universal coverage, that they get good, affordable coverage. I think that's one way that you can see it being done. And interestingly, even in his sort of exit interviews, President Obama has said, well, one way you can fix Obamacare is with a public option. One way you can do it is with a Medicare buy-in at 55. And once you nibble along the edges, you you have people up to 26 on their parents' plan. You have uh, Medicare maybe goes from 65 to 55, and then you nibble that down and people can buy into Medicare. Uh, if you burn that candle at both ends, eventually you get a single-payer system. David Dayan, readamatthenation.com. David, thanks for coming in today. Thanks, John. We're still thinking about Obama, and so is Joy Ann Reed. She's a political analyst and host of AM Joy on MSNBC, and we see her often sitting in for Chris Hayes or Rachel Maddow. She's the author of the book Fracture, Barack Obama, the Clintons, and the Racial Divide, and now she has a new book out. It's a collection of Obama's speeches titled We Are the Change We Seek. We reached her today in New York City. Joy Reed, welcome. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Well, when I think about Obama's speeches, the first one that comes to mind is the one about the uh, killing of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in Florida, killed for, you know, for doing nothing. We want to listen to uh, about two minutes of Obama's press conference, which is uh, reprinted in your book. This, this was the year after the killing, which was in 2012. But first, please set the scene for us. Well, when Trayvon Martin was first killed in February of 2012, I think it shook all of black America. It was 
it was one of those moments that I think almost every African-American, you know, will remember kind of um, the world felt like it stopped. You had this boy, this teenage boy um, who shot down by not even a police officer, but somebody who was sort of acting like a wannabe cop. And it really shook uh, Barack Obama, just like every other African-American family. His family was really shaken by it, not just him, but also his um, his wife's family, his brother-in-law. People were really, you know, personally impacted by it. And, you know, those who know, are friends with Barack Obama will tell you it was one of the moments um, that was the most searing for him as a father, as a person, as an American. So you have this weird situation where you have a president that was reticent to really address issues of race directly because of what had happened um, when he said that the police acted stupidly in arresting his friend Henry Louis Gates uh, in his own home. So he was very reticent to talk about issues of race. So when he first talked about Trayvon Martin, he did it as almost a throwaway in a press release that was about something else. It was about, um, you know, an international matter. And he added on this line that he thought would be benign, saying that, you know, when he was, if he had a son, he could look like Trayvon. And that set off this huge conflagration among white America broadly. It dropped his poll numbers with white Americans. And it had conservative critics just tarring him and saying that he was um, stoking racial hatred by making that very benign statement of fact. So fast forward to the end of the trial of George Zimmerman, the man who killed Trayvon Martin, who was acquitted, setting off yet more torrents of outrage and consternation among African-Americans. And now the president is called upon to speak about where we were now that the killer of Trayvon Martin had gone free. Let's listen, Barack Obama, after the acquittal of George Zimmerman for killing Trayvon Martin. You know, when uh, Trayvon Martin was first shot, uh, I said that this could have been my son. Uh, Another way of saying that is uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me uh, 35 years ago. And when you think about why, in the African-American community at least, um, there's a lot of pain around what happened here. I think it's important to recognize that um, the African-American community is looking at this issue through uh, a set of experiences and a a history that that doesn't go away. There are very few African-American men in this country who haven't had the experience of being followed when they were shopping in a department store. That includes me. There are very, very few African-American men who haven't had the experience of walking across the street and hearing uh, the locks click on the doors of cars. That happens to me, at least before I was a senator. There are very few African-Americans who haven't had the experience of getting on an elevator and a woman clutching her purse uh, nervously uh, and holding her breath until she had a chance to get off. That happens often. And I I don't want to exaggerate this, but those sets of experiences inform how the African-American community interprets uh, what happened uh, one night in Florida. What happened one night in Florida? Trayvon Martin could have been me. Barack Obama says, 
Joy Reid, you said he'd always been reticent about race. Had he ever talked so personally about being a black man before that? Well, he certainly did in his autobiography, Dreams from My Father. I mean, he just as a public black man, I think he, you know, he explained himself and his evolution on race really um, in, in sort of beautiful terms in the book. Um, but in terms of a candidate, candidate Barack Obama had really declined to really dive into issues of race, really focusing more on issues um, of economics, of people being left out, and trying to square a circle. You know, remember, his last sort of big foray politically was trying to get elected statewide in, in Illinois, and you don't do that by doing a lot of discourse, you know, discourse on race. Um, and so I think that this is a very pragmatic man, Barack Obama, and he never was one to try to use racial politics to get himself elected. But now he finds himself president of the United States and the hopes um, and really the visceral needs of the African-American community are confronting him, staring him in the face. You know, black people elected him expecting him to speak to the issues that we deal with every day and to give voice to the frustrations and the agonies um, that African-Americans feel. So he had an, there was an incredible pressure on him to do that. Um, and so I think it was something he didn't run for president to do. But I think he understood that once he was president, it was something that was his obligation to do. There was one time that he talked quite explicitly about race in America, and that was in his 2008 campaign in his speech in Philadelphia, where he defended his ties to his longtime pastor in Chicago, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright. We want to listen to a minute or two of that speech, but again, please set the scene for us. Obama is campaigning for the first time to be president. You know, when uh, Barack Obama and first moved to Chicago, one of the things that happens when you um, are an up-and-coming, affluent African-American in a new city is you typically, um, if you are religious, and you know the majority of African-Americans are, you look for a church. And the Obamas wound up in the church of Jeremiah Wright. And he was, he's an incredibly learned man, first of all. He'd been a naval officer, um, a naval medical officer, who actually was one of the four people who worked on Lyndon Johnson when he was hospitalized um, at Bethesda Naval Center. So he was a guy who had, you know, served his country, who had gone to um, get a religious education. And he preached a kind of liberation theology uh, in Chicago in his church. And what that really meant was that he was teaching African-Americans to know the gospel, but to know the revolutionary gospel, the revolutionary Jesus Christ, the one who turned over the tables of the money changers and fought fiercely on behalf of the poor and downtrodden. And that's really how he came up. So when Barack Obama starts to run for president, you have journalists starting to dig around in the sermons of Jeremiah Wright to find out more about what kind of... Um, sort of moral teaching and intellectual teaching had grounded this young Barack Obama. And they find these sermons, which are excerpted first on ABC News. They're also excerpted in Rolling Stone, I believe it was. I mean, you know, you start to suddenly have clips of Jeremiah Wright's sermons, and they're very fiery. They're very racial. They're very blunt. But they're also very scholarly. But the scholarly bit doesn't make it into the news stories. All people get is the harsh truth that he's trying to tell to America which, by the way, aren't that much different than some of the harsh truths that Martin Luther King Jr. told to America. He had a sermon in his pocket when he died called Why America Might Go to Hell. The people don't know that king, and they didn't understand this Jeremiah Wright. So now you have Barack Obama, this urbane young senator who's supposed to be running on racial healing, 
associated with this racial firebrand and he's called upon to give a comprehensive speech explaining his views on race. And there you go. He gives probably the most um, famous race speech in American political history. Let's listen. Obama in 2008, while he is campaigning for president, the background music here is courtesy of WNYC. And just as black anger often proved counterproductive, so have these white resentments distracted attention from the real culprits of the middle-class squeeze. A corporate culture rife with inside dealing, questionable accounting practices, and short-term greed. A Washington dominated by lobbyists and special interests. Economic policies that favor the few over the many. And yet to wish away the resentments of white Americans, to label them as misguided or even racist, without recognizing they are grounded in legitimate concerns, this too widens the racial divide and blocks the path to understanding. This is where we are right now. It's a racial stalemate we've been stuck in for years. And contrary to the claims of some of my critics, black and white, I have never been so naive as to believe that we can get beyond our racial divisions in a single election cycle or with a single candidate, particularly a candidacy as imperfect as my own. But I have asserted a firm conviction, a conviction rooted in my faith in God and my faith in the American people, that working together, we can move beyond some of our old racial wounds. And that in fact, we have no choice. We have no choice if we are to continue on the path of a more perfect union. So Obama talking about the resentments of white Americans in 2008, amazingly prescient in anticipating the disasters of uh, 2016. And of course, Obama did not do much to change those things he described in Washington. Lobbyists and special interests are still in charge. Short-term greed still overpowers the long-term interests of the many. And the resentments of white Americans have uh, put their own candidate uh, in, in the White House. I wonder what you think we should do now. What should Trump's opponents say about white supremacy in the White House? Are there any lessons from Obama's rhetoric and, and Trump's victory? Well, I think that one of the things that was always true was that at a certain point, we were going to have this confrontation on race and on racial hierarchy. I mean, this is a country that was founded uh, as a slave republic. Um, and when you found a country on a principle that's unique in all the world, which is that you write into your constitution that people of a certain race are designated as property, you just don't unwind that easily, even over the course of 400 years. And so we did this experiment in 2008. What would, it, what would happen if you took a member of the ultimate outgroup and made them president of the United States. Well, if we look um, at the history of the country in terms of the Civil War and Reconstruction, if you look um, at the history of the country going all the way back to the beginning, I think it's clear that backlash is a, a huge component of our, of our racial history. And I think when Barack Obama got elected, the backlash was ferocious and it was ongoing, and it elected Donald Trump, quite frankly. You had white America, as you heard uh, Barack Obama himself describe in his speech, feeling these resentments as people who don't look like them 
uh, are increasingly encroaching in their view on areas they thought were their own. You know, even things like the New Deal. You started to see white Americans turn away and turn against New Deal programs as they saw non-white immigrants and black people and others benefiting from them. And there's a tribalism, I think, that is just uniquely human, um, that's uniquely American. And I don't think there's much that can be done about it other than to try to talk about it. And one of the legacies, I think, of the Obama years is that we finally talked about it. Yes, we are in the depths of the backlash from it, but at least we're having the conversation. I hope that over the next four years, we just don't start to fear the conversation. Joy Reid, her new book is We Are the Change We Seek, The Speeches of Barack Obama. Joy, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>